Welcome to the Renting Reno podcast. I'm Tim Carson, and this podcast series is from our latest men's conference at New West Community Church, where I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship. We are a Baptist church committed to a Reformed theology, expositional preaching, intentionally intercultural, and we hold a high view of God and the scriptures. If you want to know more about New West Community Church, you can find us at newwestcommunitychurch.com. The men's conference theme was Man's Quest for Meaning, and this episode is a recording of the first session entitled Man's Quest for Legacy by Pastor Tim Carson. Um, all right, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one. I'm not going to read the whole section. I will uh, come in at, oh, I wanted to read the whole section, but it's a long section. Let me come in at verse eight and we'll read to verse 15. Hear men, the very word of God. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to may be able at any time to recall these things. And this is the reading of God's word. So you may have a couple questions in your mind. Why this conference? Why this conference? Well, a couple reasons. The need for men to gather is important. The world seeks to drive us apart. The world seeks us to drive us into isolation, to into our, our own style of recreation and pleasure, uh, devoid of relationship. And there's a saying that I've been saying for a long time, a long time is relative, I guess, but for a while now, as men go, so goes the family, so goes vocation, there goes education, there goes the church, there goes the government. So as men think, they are, and as they go, everything follows. As men increase their separation and segregation, the worse this world gets. Who begins to fill the void when men begin to step back? And as men fade into the shadows, when it comes to mentoring, leading, and building, I really believe that the next two generations will become truncated in their understanding of life and of God. To say to the world in this conference, another reason why we have this conference is to say to the world's elementary spirits, as Paul would write, we have died to you. And thus we are no longer alive in you, rather we are alive in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin and indulgence. We have a new king. Thirdly, I think 
well, for me to put on a conference like this through our church and to, for us to host you here. Thirdly, is to equip and encourage you to know and to experience that the world's wisdom, despite its appearance in promoting self-made religion, the stoicism, the severity of the body, productivity hacks, 12 rules for life, 12 steps for this, six easy ways to get around that. Equip you and encourage you to know and experience that the world's wisdom is empty. There may be small nuggets of truth in it, but we would call that common grace. Because if it doesn't point us to Christ and it doesn't point us to our need for him, then it's empty. Because where else would it point? It would point to ourselves. Lastly, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, why this conference? Well, to build up and build into young men. For them to come to a conference like this and to see us as older men, some of us older than others, as examples of courage, steadfastness, faithfulness, and the love for the Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are thinking right now, yeah, but Tim, you don't, you don't know me. I'm not always like that. I'm not saying you always are. But do you love Jesus? Do you love your King? Do you want to serve Him? Are you humble before Him? And as you do those things, whether you know it or not, young men see you do that. And you are examples to them of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's heavy. That's meant to be heavy. And it's good because our God is good. Amen. What is legacy? What is legacy? Some people would say that legacy is an inheritance from one's estate, usually given to an organization. We would call that legacy giving. Others would say that it's used to describe an institution that's been in existence for a period of time. We would call that legacy media. Others would say, no, it's actually meant to, to describe software that's been superseded and it's difficult to replace. Others would say that legacy is a long-lasting impact of particular events and actions that took place in the past, especially in a person's life. And I want to put before you this, this evening that we all quest for legacy. I believe it's built into us by our creator. And we leave a legacy whether we like it or not. Everybody leaves a legacy. And again, that's heavy, but it's true. And I don't know if you've ever thought about legacy before and what you leave behind, but I hope to plant a seed in your mind this evening. Some have asked, well, what age does legacy mean something for men? Because usually there's something built into men specifically that causes us to do things that, that would create a legacy, whether it's on paper or in stone. Some people say they're not sure. There's conflicting viewpoints on, on when the actual date of that happens. Does it happen at midlife? Does it happen at 30? Does it happen at 60 or 70? Does it happen on a deathbed? Nobody's really sure. 
One thing is for sure, that all men desire to leave some kind of impression in this world. It's only just a matter of magnitude. And each legacy can be described as having the, fo- the following senses to it. There's a growing urgency in a man's life about legacy. There's this feeling of immediacy to immortality. Because men come to understand that they are not immortal. And they want to build something or leave something behind that will outlast them. And there's this image transfer from one to another. This thing that they build or create or give to or leave behind, it usually has some kind of impression on it from them. If you don't believe me, just go to a hospital and look at how many people's names are on the wings of these hospitals. It's not a bad thing. But it's a legacy issue for them. As a, as a former plumber, pipe fitter, Trace person, well, I guess I'm not a former trace person. I'm still a trace person. Still got all my tickets. <laughs> they can't take those from me. My kids hated it when we were in the car and we'd be downtown. We're like, hey, you see that building over there? That building there? I, I did the heating system in that building. And they'd be like, yeah, I know. You tell us every time. Hey, you see that over there? <sighs> every time. Every time. Right? And I have to admit, there's a certain amount of pride knowing that there are, I've worked in almost every hospital from Lionsgate all the way up to Chilliwack. And in every part of these hospitals, I've been in the bowels of St. Paul's Hospital. Doors where I barely fit through because they're so narrow and so short. Places that I would never thought existed. I've, I've crawled on my belly underneath Providence Hospital in the dirt. Done work there. And now every time I drive by, I'm like, hey. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, know, we get it. Stop it. Best legacy. Best legacy. When I held my children when they were first born, especially my son, my firstborn son, I, I can't even explain to you the feeling. For those of you that have, that have children, especially sons, I think you understand what I'm talking about. And it's not that I love my son more than I love my daughter's. There's just, there was just something different when I held him. And I'll tell you something else. Having grandchildren sure forced me to think through generationally. I was already thinking generationally when my little granddaughter was born six weeks ago. She's grown so much. My wife was just telling me on the phone that she's already missing all these things that are changing in her life because she lives in Duncan and we're not close and physically. But there's nothing like a grandchild that will drive your mind into thinking about generations to come. Legacy. We come to Second Peter. And this small section, verses 12 to 15, has been labeled by most Paul's legacy statement, sorry, Peter's legacy statement. Now, the recipients of this letter were the same recipients to the first letter, group mostly comprised of Jews. There were Gentiles there as well. And Peter writes this to comfort and instruct the believers who were facing extreme external threats to their life and to their church. 
That has no bearing on our life today, does it? That's a rhetorical <laughs> question. Maybe a little sarcastic. Peter in this letter addresses the even more deadly threat of false teachers. There's not a plethora of false teachers today, is there? Now, Peter did not identify the specific heresy, but whoever these heretics were, they were, like many others, ones who would deny Christ. They would twist the scriptures. They followed instead the cleverly devised tales, destructive heresies. They mocked the second coming of Christ. They mocked the second judgment. They would practice immorality. They despised authority. They were arrogant and vain, and they sought material wealth. That has no bearing on our life today, does it? And as much as it is a needed rebuke to the false teachers, it's also a stark reminder of us of how important legacy was to Peter. We look at verse 12, and he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. There's an urgency, there's a fervor with Peter. Earlier on, he says, you want to, want to supplement your faith with these things, these qualities. And he's repetitious on purpose. It's not just a pedagogical approach. It's an urgency in his life to make sure that when he repeats these things, it sticks in their mind. You ever had to repeat something to somebody? My wife repeats things to me all the time. It's repetitious on purpose. He wants to be all more diligent in making sure that those who are receiving his letter understand how to live a holy life in the face of heresy and danger. And right in that same verse, in verse, that last half of verse 12, there's a forbearance or a kindness here. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. You see that? He's not saying, yeah, I'm going to remind you of them because you're so slow in learning that I got to spend all this time to keep going over and over and over these things. No, he goes, I, it's urgent for me to do these things and I know that you know them. I know that you know it. But I need to tell you again and again. He's coming to the end of his life. I think if we were in this position where we knew that our life was going to end very soon, there would be things that we would want to say to certain people, and we may even want to repeat it again and again and again. That there's an urgency to the message. There's a kindness in his tone. He was encouraging. He was not condescending. This firmly established means to be strengthened. It's a settled condition. He wants them to settle deep into these things. The truth you now have, he says. What truth? 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I get that echo in the back of my mind of Pilate looking right at Jesus and saying, what is truth? And he's looking right at truth. What is truth? Peter says, the truth you now have. What truth? The truth of God's law. And how it points out sin in our lives and points to us the need of a Savior. But it doesn't leave us there, does it? It brings us to grace, the truth of God's grace, that his law condemns, but his love will forgive. And then it's the truth of God's provision and protection in Christ. See, the law points out our sin, and the gospel of grace calls out to us to surrender our lives to Christ. Not to pull us up our bootstraps and go, okay, I'm going to live by those 12 rules of life that Mr. Peterson has written about. I'm going to get better on my calendar. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. No, you come to Christ. You come to Christ alone. And you kneel at the cross. And you pray for forgiveness. And you thank him for the protection that you have in Christ. The truth you now have, he says. Then he continues on in verse 13. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Like, who's going to argue with Peter? Right? When he says this, I think it right. Who's going to go, um, yeah, hold on. Who are you? No one's ever going to call his, his character into question. Aren't you the guy that betrayed Jesus like three times? Like, you know, hmm. I don't think anybody's ever going to call Peter into account like that. He says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to remind you. As long as I'm in this body. That's a sober statement. Because he knows he's not always going to be in this body. And there is a deep sense of urgency there for him. It's, I don't want to say it's almost like he's, he's putting his finger down on, a, on, a, on the table. Have you, has your dad ever done that to you? As long as I am alive, you will not do this. Right? Or as long as you live under my roof. You ever heard that one before? Yeah, lots of times for me. I can almost see Peter doing that, but with gentleness. As long as I am in this body, I'm going to remind you of these things. He's not giving up. He wants to stir them up. He wants to arouse them completely. He wants to thoroughly awaken them. It's almost like he wants to grab them by the shirt and just gently shake them. Not violently, like blah, 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 but just gently shake. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to do this for you. By way of reminder, what reminder? <clears throat> that we've obtained a faith of equal standing. That's how he opened the letter. Look at, look at right at the beginning, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who, look, have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That's beautiful. He's an apostle of Christ. Right? 
Yeah, he's, yeah, he's the one who rejected Christ three times. But let's not forget he's the same one that Christ came after he risen and came to him on the beach and said, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I do. Feed my sheep. Three times he did that. And then what's he say at the end of that? Feed my sheep. Follow me. Follow me, he says. That's not the first time Peter's heard that, right? That's not the first time Peter's heard that. Follow me. He gave up a legacy to follow Christ. Did he not? He was a fisherman. And by all rights, probably a pretty good one. Strong. Knew what he was doing. Knew the water. Knew the fish. Knew how to fish. Come follow me. Dropped it all and walked. Left a legacy to follow Christ. And when it all caved in on him, Christ comes back to him and says, follow me. You're going to pick up your legacy. By way of reminder, that by the righteousness of God, our Savior, right? It says, you have equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? There's no, you, there's no, you have an equal standing with us because you got an A on your theology exam. It's not, you, you have an equal standing with us because you can give lots of money. Or you're a really hard worker. No. You have equal standing with us because of the righteousness of God our Savior Jesus Christ. That word righteousness means that it's equal. God's righteousness is on the scale. And the only way it balances out is if Christ's righteousness is given for you. That's the only way it balances out. There are other faiths of this world that say, on that scale, we pour everything that we can on that other side, and we hope that that balances out. And if it doesn't, we're in trouble. But following Christ, it's not our righteousness that balances the scale. It's Christ's righteousness given to us. And that knowledge of God that Peter says, multiplies grace and peace. Not just adds to it, multiplies it. There's a faithfulness in Peter's heart when he says, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder of what you've been given by God. And there's a, there's a fin, fin, finitude. I have a hard time saying that word. Look at what he says at the end. Verse 14 and 15. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, is he talking about just right then? Or is he talking about a previous event? Probably both. Because we know that in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen to him at the end of his life. People are going to bind you and they're going to lead you away where you don't want to go. 
And Peter here is saying, I, I'm not going to be here much longer. The putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort. Listen to this. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you hear that? I will make every effort after my departure that you may be able at any time to recall these things. What things? The things that he's listed out in verses 3 to 9. These qualities. Adding to your faith. Bringing to faith virtue. Right? Look here. Virtue. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. You know, we have a finite number of days in life. You probably knew that, right? I did a calculation. I have, according to my calculation, Lord willing, if I live to 85, which is about the average age of a male in North America, I have 11,315 days, days left. That's not a lot. 11,315 days. And so it begs the question, what am I going to do? Am I just going to sell everything and buy a red sports car and take my wife to California? Or maybe not California, but go to Florida. <laughs> Live out my last days in freedom, my last 11,315 days, Lord willing. I don't know. It may be tomorrow. It may be tonight on the way home. Brothers, did you hear about our brother in Arizona? A man preaching on the street corner yesterday, 6 p.m., shot in the head for preaching God's word. He's in the hospital clinging to life right now. I'll bet you at 3 p.m. that afternoon, he did not know what was coming. He knew it was dangerous. They knew it was dangerous in that area. But he did it anyway. He has a wife and two kids. He may not have many days left. And that's the wrong place to, be start, to start thinking about a legacy. So we pray for him, and you need to pray for him this evening. Peter uses a really interesting word, and it's a beautiful word in verse 15. The, the word that he uses for departure is exodus. He uses the word exodus because death, brothers, is not a destination. Death is a departure. Death is not the end. For some, there will be eternal pain and suffering. For those who have given their lives to Christ, believe that He's the one, the only one who could save you from your sins whose righteousness alone balances out the scales of God's judgment on your behalf, if you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you die tonight on the way home, you're saved. Death is a departure for you. It's not a destination. 
Peter knew, knew that. He knew that. Peter's statement of legacy contains what we talked about earlier. It contains fervor, forbearance, faithfulness, and this finitude or finitude, however you want to pronounce it. But I want to take the last few minutes of my talk this evening to talk to you about a young man whose legacy some of you may not even know. You will know who he is when I say his name because we, we recognize him every year. It's not St. Nick. I'll just get that out of the way. I know. Ah, come on. His name is Patrick. Patrick was raised in what appears to have been a nominal Christian home. Patrick's own statement that before his captivity in Ireland, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, he said that he did not know the true God, even though he grew up in a nominal Christian home. His dad was a deacon. And in the words of another chronicler, his home, Patrick's home, was worldly in spirit, Christian in name. Patrick was born into the upper crust of what they would call the the Romano-British society. He was accustomed to wealth and comfort in that era. And at the age of 16, Patrick found himself violently torn away from his family. He was kidnapped. To use other words, he was man-stolen. He became a slave in Ireland. And as a result of the intensely traumatic experience, Patrick then turns to God. And in his own words, this is what he says, And there, in Ireland, the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who had regard for my objection and mercy on my youth and ignorance. That's not quite the response you would expect from a young man at 16 years old, would you? Huh? Some of us still have a 16-year-old inside of us. And we cry out, that's not fair. Not Patrick. At least not that we know of. Maybe he did. Maybe the Lord brought him to this point. Truth is, he came to this point, And he gave his life to God. After six years in captivity, six years in captivity, That's essentially a third of his life. Patrick managed to escape. Can you imagine that? He escaped. (laughs) And eventually found his way back to his family in Britain. Kind of reminds me of Winston Churchill. He was in the Boer War. He got captured. He escaped. And he made his way all the way back to Britain. When he was back with his family, Patrick writes that he had a striking dream in which he sensed a call to return to Ireland to work among the people who had enslaved him. Can you imagine that conversation with his mom and dad? Yeah, I want to go on a missions trip. Really, where do you want to go? Uh, Ireland. Really? The people that you escaped from. Yeah, yeah, I want to go back there. They need to know God. 
Patrick received some formal theological training. He became ordained. He learned more of Latin. So much so that he became Patrick, a man of one book. I'll let you guess what book that was. So around 432, this is 432, not 1432, 432. He departs to go back to Ireland where he had been held as a captive and he would never come home again. Patrick speaks of thousands being converted through his ministry, including sons and daughters of kings. Later on, about 120 years later, after he dies, three men rise up within the church in that area and really begin to strengthen the church that would become the the Celtic church in Ireland. And they give all the credit and honor to Christ and then to Patrick for the things that he wrote that they studied and trained so that they could pick up the mantle and continue on. There was such a reservoir of spiritual vigor that it fructified, meaning it, it, it seeded the parched lands of Western Europe. The influence that Patrick had in Ireland, not only in his presence, but in his writings, caused a missionary movement from Ireland all the way through Western Europe. How could Patrick even think of that happening? He couldn't. He says this near the end of his confessions, one of two things that we have left surviving from Patrick. He says, such are some of the key aspects of the long-range legacy of the mission of Patrick. Somebody's writing this about him, who had simply come to Ireland to pass his faith in the one God in the Trinity of his holy name. Patrick was a Trinitarian. And that's, that's why I hate it when they show Patrick with like the, the, the three-leaf clover, right? Because like, well, that's the Trinity, right? Three things, the three and one. Don't do that. Peter, uh, sorry, Patrick wrote, In the light, therefore, of our faith in the Trinity, I must make this choice. Regardless of danger, I must make known the gift of God and everlasting consolation without fear and frankly, I must spread everywhere the name of God so that after, after I decease, I may leave a bequest to my brethren and sons whom I have baptized in the Lord so many thousands of people. That kind of sounds like Peter. And God blessed it. And Peter's legacy continues. And so does Patrick's. Brothers, what's your legacy going to be like? I'm not asking you to step up to the plate and be a Patrick unless God calls you to do that. But I, I deeply ask you, implore you to begin thinking, if you haven't already, 
about your legacy. Young men, you will leave a legacy. And you don't think so right now because you're, you're young and you're, you look up to guys who are twice your age. And legacy may be the last thing on your mind. But the things that you do now, the decisions that you make today, will have consequences later on in your life. You will have a legacy. You will leave something behind. Choice is up to us, brothers, as to how people will remember us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy in Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the letter of Second Peter. We thank you, Father, for the example that Peter is to us and in the fervency of his desire to make sure that those under his care would remember the things that he's taught. Father, not all of us in this room are pastors. We know that. Not all of us are dads. We know that. Not all of us are uncles. We know that. But, but you call us to live a godly life. So, Father, help us to live that life under your care, under your direction, under your power. For we don't know what may happen 120 years from now where somebody somewhere may be influenced by the legacy that we leave. Help us to build wisely. Help us to build diligently. Help us to build these things in Christ and not in our own name. In Jesus' powerful name I ask, Lord. Amen. Amen.